You are listening to the UI podcast by the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. All right. Uh, good afternoon, everybody, and very much welcome to this seminar, Democracy in the Age of Disinformation. Uh, my name is Martin Krog. I'm the head of the Russia Eurasia program here with the Institute, and it is my great pleasure to introduce our three um, speakers here today. Um, we have uh, in the middle, we have Peter Pomerantsev. Uh, uh, we have Sasha uh, Havlicek and uh, Chloe Colliver. And they have together also contributed to the uh, publication here, which I'm holding in my hand and which many of you um, found outside. It can also be downloaded. There's a uh, link if you cannot find a copy of it. There's a link on the website of our institute. Um, and it deals with... Uh, uh, well, actually, I think it's better for me to read the title of the report, Smearing Sweden, International Influence Campaign in the 2018 Swedish Election. And this was a project that was uh, initiated uh, with the support of the uh, Civil Contingencies Agency, uh, MSB, here in Sweden, uh, who are monitoring this topic, as you all know. And um, uh, together also with uh, a few other authors, uh, Anne Applebaum and Jonathan uh, Birdwell, uh, together they have uh, published this report. Um, I'm not going to speak for much more. I will sort of, we discussed before about the structure, the format of this seminar. It's not a very formalized seminar. We th thought that it's much more interesting to do this in a more informal way. But uh, each of you will have about five or so minutes uh, for introductory remarks, and then we will have some Q&As. So that's the more loose format of the form uh, this uh, seminar today um, and Chloe you will begin uh, by talking about the report yes and thank you all very much for coming I'm looking forward to a very constructive and interesting conversation um, I'm going to give a quick overview of the report the report specifically um, the research we undertook over the last few months uh, the methodology and, and some of the key findings um, and I hope you've all had time to either have a quick look through or, or to download it afterwards. Um, so we set out really to look at, at two things, one of which was any attempts to interfere directly with the Swedish election in 2018 online. Uh, and the second was really to uh, dig down into something we've seen on a more consistent level for a year and a half or so now in all of our research, which was the online smear campaign about Sweden. Um, and to do that, we undertook a range of different digital analysis uh, methods. Um, it's something that at ISD we've done for some time now to look at broad trends in both the far right and the ismus extremist space. Uh, that involves everything from social media listening, so the bigger sites like Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, but also monitoring fringe platforms on the internet that are often used to produce and coordinate propaganda campaigns and information campaigns. That includes uh, sites like 4chan and 8chan, um, some of the nastier corners of the internet, and uh, chat platforms uh, that have been highlighted uh, greatly in the media in the past weekend, for example, like Gab, uh, which have been built as purposeful alternatives to mainstream platforms online, where hate and extremism are allowed to proliferate. We also undertook a series of network mapping exercises um, to really understand the online ecosystem that Swedes are working within and whether they are consuming information from 
Swedish sources, international sources, uh, who they're connected with and what that means in an election period. And finally, also some broadcast media monitoring. So uh, in looking at the smear campaign about Sweden, we engaged companies that we work with to look at Arte and Sputnik's output about Sweden and also the content about Sweden produced by a number of the biggest and most influential international far-right broadcast uh, channels. So channels like Red Eyes TV, Breitbart TV, and Alex Jones's InfoWars television show. All in all, quite a broad spectrum of research that we undertook um, running up to and following the election that gave us a real sense, I think, of the information ecosystem um, that was active during the election period. And I suppose the first thing to say in terms of findings uh, is that we were relatively surprised at the very small scale of international interference that we saw directed at the Swedish election itself. We've now studied a number of elections, uh, many in collaboration with Peter and Anne at LSE Arena. Um, for example, the German election last year, the Italian election earlier this year. And in comparison, the Swedish election was really relatively free of coordinated international campaigns to try and interfere. Um, which I suppose is pretty good news and all for people around the table. But what we did see on the other side of that was an incredibly concerted information campaign throughout Europe and the US and Canada about Sweden, um, full of disinformation, uh, rife with sensationalist media, um, and really portraying Sweden uh, completely uh, with no relation to events on the ground. Uh, but I think important to note that the purpose of, of that is likely very unrelated to anything within Sweden itself. We saw kind of purpose-built accounts and websites set up purely for that purpose. So SaveMySweden.com, an English language website that spreads only information about Sweden. I should say disinformation about Sweden for the most part. Moving on to some other findings from the research. Um, we did see tactics uh, in the Swedish instance that we identified in previous elections, um, but those weren't really followed up on uh, to any scale or with any sophistication. On 4chan, which is one of the nastier chat forums you can find um, uh, and the home of the far right internationally, we saw the same structures and plans and information provided to international actors to try and interfere in the Swedish election. They were passed instructions and memes to try and spread in Swedish. 44% um, of the accounts we could identify uh, active in trying to promote those campaigns were from Denmark. But what we didn't see was any pickup of those instructions to actually follow through on mainstream platforms. So no real follow through or mainstreaming of those efforts. We saw one or two specific disinformation campaigns and influence campaigns um, directed at the election on Facebook. For example, Hibbert Zil-Tahrir, which is one of the most well-known uh, extremist Islamist organizations, um, uh, instilled an effort on Facebook to try and prevent Muslims in Sweden from voting. But these were pretty sporadic and small scale where we did see them occur. Tactics-wise, we spotted uh, a number of tactics that were rolled out in previous elections, including amplification tactics. So we do quite a lot of work to try and identify bots and likely automated accounts to understand where inorganic amplification is happening. Um, I think worth saying that 
this has got a lot harder to track uh, in the past six months, six to eight months. Um, that's partly due to the job that social media companies are doing to remove these kind of accounts, and they are doing a much better job of that. But also due to the increasing sophistication that we're seeing. Um, these automated accounts often embed themselves very successfully in real-life networks um, and act in a way or, or are controlled in a way to make them look much more human. We found about 55 um, almost certainly bots that were active in the weeks running up to the election, purely promoting Alternative for Sweden, which then changed tactic in the wake of the election to promote the election fraud narrative that we saw. Only one of these bots we could identify had been active in previous elections. And that bot, interestingly, had changed names twice. It had had one name for its activities supporting Trump in the 2016 US election. It had another name to support Marine Le Pen in the French election. And again, switched uh, in Sweden when supporting AFS. And then finally, I suppose, uh, one of the more concerted campaigns that we followed quite closely and there's almost certainly of more concern is the election fraud campaign. Over 2,000 posts on Twitter uh, used the election fraud hashtag a week before the election had occurred. So this was very much a pre-planned campaign to try and instill fear that the election is not credible, that the process does not work and is not fair. And this is something that we've seen in every single election we've monitored over the past two years. And in, in saying that, I think it's something that it would be really wonderful to have a conversation about here, but there must be ways of preempting this kind of pre-planned, coordinated campaign to try and discredit democratic processes. And saying that, I will hand over to Peter for his introductory remarks. Oh, I thought I was going third. Should I go second? You can go second. Really? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> if you'd like, I mean, I, I'm happy to, to take it from here, but... Well, I was, what are you going to talk about? I'm going to talk about sort of, I want to get into the larger question of democracy in the age of disinformation, which is our theme today, and look at some of the sort of larger regulatory and cultural factors going forward. But that's quite a general thing. What do you want to talk about? I'm going to talk about exactly the same. Shall I go first? Otherwise, you'll take all the points. Uh, um, well, I, I think, I'll hand, why don't we do a double act? Peter, why don't you jump in? Yeah, start. Um, I, I mean, actually, I think the double act is important. The reason that we've partnered here on this, and I think it, it bears mentioning, uh, is that we, uh, we are looking at a set of problems from two different perspectives. Um, very important for us to be doing that now, but increasingly we see a bleed, an interesting amalgam of influence, uh, not just across European uh, electoral context, but also internationally now, uh, of what we call the internationalizing far right. And I think it's the wrong prism, and I'd, I'd like to treat that issue of what we call, what we term the far right today, perhaps a little bit later, but nonetheless, the internationalizing far right and Kremlin influence, and indeed other state influence. And there is this interesting uh, dance now of, oh, I'm sorry, yeah, is that better? Mm. Uh, there is an interesting dance of state and non-state actors uh, that are not fully coordinated. And I think, again, we'll, we'll look at what we term uh, to be 
coordinated effort in a digital era. Uh, but nonetheless, there are efforts that are uh, amplifying uh, the impact of interference, not just in elections. And again, I'd like to take a, a stand back uh, and look at the, the effect on democracy writ large uh, resulting from, from these developments. And so we've come together, Peter and Anne, with this extraordinary uh, knowledge of all things Kremlin and Russia, and our institute coming at this from the perspective of the rise of extremist movements. And uh, for over a decade now, we've been watching the evolution, not just of uh, the tactics and the operational activities of uh, Islamist groups, uh, but also, of course, of far-right groups. And there has been a, a tremendous uh, evolution of the way in which they operate, which has had a, a big impact. So I, I, I think just a couple of things to start off what I hope will be a very interactive conversation. As Chloe said, what we've been witnessing now uh, across uh, various European elections is some degree of purposeful coordination between Kremlin-affiliated uh, and far-right actors. Uh, and we're seeing a sort of ex extremely sophisticated use of new technologies. Uh, we're seeing uh, a tactical coordination in terms of exchange of best practice uh, across borders in ways that one wouldn't necessarily normally associate with ethno-nationalist uh, grouplets. Um, and we've seen the amplification of those uh, efforts, political efforts, by, uh, by Kremlin-affiliated uh, sources. And uh, what, uh, what I think we're seeing in many senses is not just um, an information warfare, it is ultimately a narrative warfare, which is starting to have uh, great impact uh, across, across the continent. Much of that is legitimate activity, and I think the challenge that we face is in addressing the legitimate aspects of these campaigns that are neither illegal nor necessarily are they focused on uh, disinformation or misinformation. They are, in fact, the amplification of all sorts of aspects of the truth, stretching truths uh, as we see them. And, uh, and I think that this is going to be one of the challenges that we face now, really, in a, in a big way going forward. Uh, I wanted to say what, what really struck us here was how little of that coordinated effort that we saw in other European contexts uh, and internationally happened in this Swedish context. And, and I, I think there are a number of reasons that we, might, uh, that we might posit, perhaps some of them practical. Is it worth it for these groups to be mobilizing in Sweden? The language barriers are high. Uh, the knowledge of the cultural space is perhaps low. But I would say that actually the value of Sweden for this internationalized far-right movement, in fact, is in uh, its iconic status. Its iconic status of being the emblem of all things liberal, liberal democracy, and that emblem falling from grace. And so, in fact, the investment that was made was much more an investment in projecting that falling from grace to an international constituency, rather than the investment that we've seen in other places in actually making a change in terms of the electoral process itself within the country. And I think that, again, it speaks to this issue of the potency of a narrative, of a narrative warfare. And Sweden has now, 
in many contexts become, in a way, the poster boy, the poster girl of this far-right movement. It is ultimately, iconically, a symbol of white Europe falling from grace, Islamized, with the, with the political elites turning a blind eye. And so we see that narrative play out across many of these uh, environments that we've been looking at. Uh, but I think it's important to look at the impact, not just from an electoral standpoint, because in many ways I think the trajectory of the far right over the last two decades has been a, as much uh, a story about the, f the failure, its failure from an electoral standpoint, but it is equally the story of its success <laughs> from the perspective of mainstreaming cultural narratives. And we've seen an enormous uh, evolution of the far right in terms of um, the move from being essentially a racialist conception uh, of identity, of in-out, to a culturalist conception. In the 1970s, we started to see French uh, philosophers invest in this idea of the nouvelle droite. And it's taken, uh, it's taken some time for that to generally, genuinely take hold. But we saw uh, over, in, in the aftermath of 9-11, a very interesting constellation start to come uh, together bringing uh, a, a broad church together from conservative forces through libertarian forces through to these anti-Islam movements all under one umbrella. And this new far right, which, is, which presents itself uh, in a much more palatable way to mainstream and middle-class audiences, which is no longer a street movement. Uh, it is in many ways uh, representing itself as the defender of the liberal order the de defender of uh, Western values, liberal values against the onslaught of Islam, the Islamist narrative being at the absolute center of the way in which they perceive themselves. This transformation is a dangerous one because it started to have a, a genuine impact on mainstream politics and the way in which mainstream political narratives have been constructed. And they're operationalizing around very clear political objectives. And this is something that we have seen here. These objectives are, number one, of course, to get their people or people uh, that are sympathetic to those views elected. And so there are a series of places in which that is strategically important. I think perhaps that was less important in the Swedish case, and perhaps the Swedish Democrats were doing well enough anyway to have proven that point. But they look to mobilize around those elections. They also look to mobilize, of course, around the free speech debate, which is a cornerstone of that uh, far-right uh, narrative now and in that they are also looking to undermine any attempts to legislate in terms of hate speech and they've done that fairly successfully in a number of contexts and of course the anti-immigration agenda which has been normalized in many senses now across mainstream politics across the whole uh, of Europe and beyond so these very clear political objectives the tactics which are uh, unifying quite a disparate ideological uh, set of actors under one umbrella for the purpose of achieving those objectives um, has proven very successful. And we are starting to see investments in more of that. What now happens with Bannon's movement? What now happens as we start to see attempts not only to bring together disparate elements of the far right, but also uh, the populist left? These are the questions I think that will dominate.
and in terms of political tactics, again, these are movements, in a way, they've lowered the barrier of entry into extremism. You no longer have to sign up to the political party or come out to demonstrate at a, a protest in a way that might get you in trouble with your job or uh, expose you in ways you wouldn't want. Uh, the online space offers opportunities for campaigning in an anonymized way. It offers an opportunity to spread uh, these kinds of ideas in, in very safe uh, ways. And finally, just to say, I think we come back to this issue, but the internet, the internet um, and the role of social media. I think that the, the, the approach has been uh, to talk about the internet in the context of um, the proliferation of bad content. But I would say from a free speech perspective, the issue is not so much um, the fact that we're able to share content, any type of content online, but the fact of what content is coming at us organically or indeed inorganically, which is the question of the algorithmic biases or the product design challenge around social media and the products that we are now so uh, commonly using. That issue of what is in fact being distorted, uh, so truth or, or rather information is getting to us not, not in a, on, a, on a level playing field, but in a distorted manner. Uh, certain ideas uh, gain more traction in that online space. As we well know, if you look for vegetarian content, you will be served vegan content quite quickly. So those algorithmic design challenges, again, uh, to be taken on board and really amplifying some of the challenges that we're facing. So uh, I hope we can have a conversation about what it is that we do in... my pop star moment. Um, so, I think Chloe and Sasha have laid out the sort of uh, the complexity of the landscape that we face. Um, so, if I mentor for the solutions, my talk will be very brief because we don't really know yet. However, um, so. One of the little jobs I'm doing at the moment is helping uh, a parliamentary committee that we have in Great Britain called the Parliamentary Committee on Fake News, where, where we're meant to come up with some of the regulatory solutions around this. I mean, solutions to what exactly when you come to it from a kind of a hard-headed regulatory point of view? Um, we talked about a dance between various new actors. Um, so a nice example of how that works technologically was in the German elections when we discovered a closed group on social media on a gaming site uh, made up of far-right French, German, American actors planning campaigns to influence the German elections. So what sort of campaigns? I mean, they'd, uh, they'd campaign to sort of penetrate Merkel's followers on Twitter and then once inside attack Merkel. So you gain trust and then spread disinformation. Or they'd go to a YouTube site and push up a video that promoted full stories about migrant crime. That, that sort of campaign. Digital marketing for Nazis. 
Now, at one point, they saw that one of their campaigns was doing much better than they thought. And they're trying to like, oh my God, how come, I think it's some hashtag they try to push. How come is this hashtag doing so well? And there was this wonderful moment when they realized that some Russian bots had come along to help them. Um, so we then found the people behind that. It was some hacker in Nizhny Novgorod who was helping the far right in, in Germany during the elections. He said, out of a sense of you know, nobility and patriotism, but you know, we suspect there may have been some government involvement somewhere. Um, so that kind of dance. So we're talking about a dance on the level of, of technological cooperation. Not collusion. I have not alleged collusion. Just a dance. Um, but then you have a narrative dance. So this, this narrative warfare that Sasha spoke about so eloquently. And I, see, I think you see that in Sweden. So you, you have a consistent effort by the US and other alt-right forces to smear Sweden as... You know, you, you all saw the Donald Trump clip last night in Sweden. Sweden is full of no-go zones, um, um, radical Islamification, and so on and so forth, which has come together with, with a fairly long-standing Kremlin campaign to smear Sweden for its own reasons, um, which was originally had to do with sort of like, you know, the sexual perversity of Sweden and sexual deviance and so on and so forth, pedophilia in, in, in primary schools, and so on and so forth. So the Kremlin had developed that, I think, itself over many years. Uh, we could go into the reasons why they particularly have it in for Sweden, but they do. Uh, and it's sort of come together with the interests of the alt-right, and they've come together in this uh, fiesta of, of, of smearing Sweden, which is really quite spectacular. And even though it's not aimed at affecting Swedish politics domestically, one does wonder when this besmirching of Sweden's international image will start to spill over into diplomatic difficulties or investment difficulties and so on and so forth. So there might well be a real world effect of all, this, of all these campaigns. So, but from a regulatory point of view, what on earth do we regulate? I mean, isn't this exactly what we wanted? We wanted a global village of information. Victory in the Cold War was the victory over censorship. We wanted countries beaming information into, into each other. This is the global information village that we dreamed of. And it's turned out to be a bit of a nightmare. So the regulatory ideas that we're moving towards, because we don't want to get rid of the idea of a global information village. I mean, personally, I think the language that has been adopted in the US around meddling is subjective, unhelpful, and ultimately potentially very, very counterproductive. So how do we preserve our desire for a global information village, but introduce regulations which help make it less of a sewer. Um, and so most of the ideas that we're having are really about sort of enhancing transparency on the internet. So if there is a malign campaign being aimed at you, you know who's doing it, you know why they're targeting you. You're very clear about whether it's organic content, which it very rarely is. But actually this is a huge coordinated campaign being waged by Nazis on, on gaming channels. So really changing what the citizen sees and understands how he's being affected. The second big regulatory thing is what Sasha brought up, starting to change the algorithmic biases which are built into the system. So we all know that the way technological algorithms work at the moment is they fuel polarization and they strengthen polarization. 
Um, this means a lot of pressure onto the tech companies. I think it'll mean some sort of public ombudsman who has a say on the algorithm, and so that we have some sort of public service mission associated with the technology that is embedded within these companies. Now, that's going to be really tough because they're wealthy, powerful, cynical, aggressive companies who helped us a little bit with the report, thank you. But this is a real challenge. So that's the regulatory part. But really, that's a very small part of what needs to be done. Because much bigger than that is how do we compete in this sphere? So what's the aim of all these campaigns? If it's one thing, it's to fuel division, polarization, and break down deliberative democracy as we've conceptualized it. Now, you can't really legislate against polarization. This is, you know, this is, this is something that's happening in our political and cultural language. So who is it who's meant to be healing that? Who's meant to be dealing with these issues? I mean, we used to think it was media, and maybe Swedish media is different, because I know there's some amazing journalists in the room. But certainly in America, and to a lesser extent in Britain, media is the problem. Media has played into the polarization. Media has, you know, look at how CNN and NBC have decided to react to Fox by becoming liberal foxes, essentially, in America. So sadly, at the moment, media is becoming more partisan and only fueling the problem. Political parties, I'm not entirely sure who they represent at the moment. Certainly, we have a bit of a crisis with that in Britain. But I don't see political parties as being the agents of fueling, of healing division and overcoming polarization when they make votes by fueling polarization. So I think that we need some sort of third force. It might be a reinvented civil society whose job it is getting up every morning to identify, disrupt the sort of campaigns that we've talked about, but to also to start working with their effects. I think that's embedded in the principles of public service media. I think countries with a strong public service media have got a better chance. But I'm actually right now reading the autobiography of Lord Reith, who created the BBC. And of course, it was all built around the idea of having a monopoly. And that was his main idea. The BBC needs a monopoly in order to create a coherent, deliberative democracy in Britain. And we can't have that anymore. So the technology's changed so much from those public service ideals. So I don't know, that's not a question, I don't have an answer to this right now, but I think we have to start thinking about who are going to be these new sorts of actors who heal the effects of the damage that's being done. I think these acts are going to have to be transnational. I don't know, are they, are they I don't know if they're profit, not for profit, I, I don't know. Maybe you guys can help us decide. So you've given us a lot of food for thought, and um, many of us will, will you know, read your report with great interest um, uh, in the near future. Um, you mentioned a, a number of issues, and I'd just like to dig into them a little bit more. Um, you mentioned, uh, and I'm sort of, I'm, I'm broadening, broadening, broadening the, the problem here even even more than so. Maybe my start here isn't optimal, but. You, you focus a lot on the sort of information or the media domain, sort of uh, online especially. But if we look uh, abroad, um, we see that uh, influencing in uh, other countries, in the democ democratic processes of other countries, can take different forms as well. And some of them 
I guess, could be even more problematic. If, you know, uh, nasty words on Facebook and Twitter was the only problem, maybe we'd, we would be fine. But um, we have the cyber uh, component. And although there wasn't any release of political party uh, emails, uh, to my knowledge, in Sweden before the election, we had a fancy bear attack on the uh, Swedish uh, uh, Sport Federation earlier this year which was uh, um, which, which uh, was um, conducted by Fancy Bear by many foreign intelligence services uh, uh, a front organization for the uh, Russian military intelligence but that was about uh, showing the Russian domestic audience primarily it was about trying to convince the Russian domestic audience that in Sweden they are also engaging in doping their athletes are no better than Russian ones. Uh, and so it's just, you know, a moral wash. Uh, and Swedish media didn't pick this up a lot at all. But, um, but the cyber domain is clearly there. In the US election, it, it might have had a, that might have been the most important sort of tool of influence that we saw uh, Hillary Clinton's emails being exposed. Um, then we have the uh, political ties, which uh, are quite visible uh, if, we move, if we look outside of. Uh, um, Sweden towards the continent. Uh, you have a few political parties, uh, the Austrian Freedom Party, uh, German Alternative for Germany Party, uh, Front National in France, and a few others, who actually are uh, have a, uh, 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 they have political ties. I mean, open uh, and sort of by sort of uh, uh, by agreement, they have these cooperation agreements with. Uh, uh, the Kremlin political party um, of power, the um, uh, United Russia party. And then we have the issue of corruption. And here again we saw in the last weeks that Sweden also is not immune. Uh, a few Swedish banks have been tied to corruption scandals in the Baltic states and uh, allegedly involved in money laundering without any sort of awareness perhaps, but still they weren't doing the due diligence. Um, so that's just my sort of <laughs> uh, even more pessimistic view, perhaps, on the challenges that we have in this sort of globalized world. It's not just, you know, the, the free media uh, ideals. It's also the ideals of a globalized economy, with, without which none of this perhaps would have been possible on the scale that we see today. And the globalization of finance. Um, so maybe uh, if you have some thoughts on, on these issues uh, to share with us. I mean, I think going to your your last point, actually, um, just quickly, uh, there was a, an excellent report, uh, Swedes in the Internet, um, that I believe is produced every year, which showed, I, th I think the statistic off the top of my head is that actually only 12% of those interviewed uh, believed that most of the information, political information they received on Facebook was accurate. So actually, I think we shouldn't overstate the importance just of the digital and this report largely covers that, but you're, you're right to point out that actually this is multi-layered and the infrastructures of influence have been built for many years preceding social media. Um, and Peter, you might be able to speak to this much better than I or Sasha, but I think there are lessons to be learned in dealing with those levels of infrastructure of influence from Central and Eastern Europe who have dealt with this, uh, I think, for a lot longer and in a more explicit manner potentially than, than we've seen in Western Europe and North America. 
Well, you mean they're really corrupt? No, no, no. I mean that there are NGOs and civic organizations and researchers who've been used to having to expose and understand mechanisms of influence, for example, from the Kremlin, for a lot longer than we've acknowledged elsewhere. Um, yeah, no, there, there are there there are some some uh, positive examples out there, but but largely the experience is highly negative. Also, there's a terrible disconnect between revealing corrupt practices and then no action being taken, which is even more dispiriting. Um, but um, I think you, you've you've put your your finger on the larger challenge. We kind of we had a sort of a uh, a sort of laissez-faire attitude about how globalization would turn out, and and now we essentially have to rethink it. Um, very specifically about Russia, because I think you're asking me about Russia. So, in terms of Russian activity, we will always lose, and we should lose on the information front. Authoritarian regimes will always win domestically because they can censor. We can't do that. And we will always be vulnerable to information attacks because we're democracies. If we were winning this battle, I would be incredibly worried. Yeah? It's one that we should be prepared to take a blow on. That's fine. If you want to come up with a strategy that hurts the Kremlin, it's not in the information space. Their vulnerability, they're in a classic dilemma situation where they have to tell their own population that the whole world is against them while being utterly reliant on a globalized economy. It wouldn't be hard to find their weak spots, which are largely to do with illicit financial flows, but also illicit ones. There is just no political will to do this, neither in Europe nor obviously in the US. To hurt the Putin regime would be fairly straightforward. Um, the information aspect of that would actually lie in information hardware. So a ban on selling any type of television content in Russia to Kremlin channels. Um, a ban on advertising on Russian channels. We currently largely fund their propaganda machine which is fairly perverse. So you have channels in Russia which feature hate speech, essentially. Attacks on LGBT rights, rants against the West, war propaganda against Ukraine. And then there's a pause, and the advertising come on, and it's IKEA, Volvo. We're paying for their war propaganda. So if we wanted to hurt them in an information space, that would be what I would go for. Yeah, you could cripple their propaganda machine, not in messaging. But that, that's just the Russia bit. But you're quite right. There's a, there's a much larger kind of challenge about what is a constructive globalization. But there's, there's two dimensions to, to democracy. There's the hardware of the democratic system, which can be hacked, as you just pointed out, the sort of cybersecurity threat to electoral processes. Very important. And I think there isn't a country now in the West that isn't making sort of reinforced investments into cybersecurity uh, at this moment in time. But the bigger challenge is the software of democracy. And again, I think we, the prism that we keep applying to this, which is elections, you know, we're here talking about this uh, and the analysis that we're constantly asked to do is around electoral cycles. But actually, the, the implications for the software of democracy, the, the, set, the, the civic uh, democratic culture of our countries is much more profound. And, and the objective of far-right groups over the, over, the, over the last three, five, maybe 10 years has very much been 
to shift that cultural uh, under underpinning to our systems. The cultural space is where the war is taking place. Um, and, and that investment has been a sort of long-term uh, investment in social, uh, cultural change through communications. Uh, so that's the piece that I think we need to be looking at. And it isn't then, therefore, just a matter of responding uh, to undermine these, these malign efforts during electoral campaigns. It is a longer-term investment, in my mind, in building our resilience and in investing in the cultural uh, content of our environments, our, our, our civil societies, for, for the next sort of 10, 15 years. I think there's a, there's a much, much bigger project that needs investing in. There is then the question of how do you do that where you no longer have the monopoly of information uh, channels at your disposal as a government, as, uh, which becomes a real challenge. Um, uh, Peter, you, you mentioned a few sort of uh, things that um, uh, Western media uh, uh, or Western corporations uh, could do in order to sort of improve the situation a little bit. Um, uh, uh, what I'm thinking a little bit about the broader role of media, and I can give two illustrations. Um, one is the recent non-event of a Russian submarine, again, in the Stockholm archipelago, reported last week, turned out not to be a submarine, or it was something they're not really forthcoming perhaps we don't really know but they're saying it what was it wasn't a russian submarine again We're, we've been through this a few times and every time this happens uh you know russian media of course but also other sources internationally and domestically you know th they see this as sort of uh, uh, as a christmas gift you know again the sort of warmongering propaganda just buying the sort of you know anti-russian narrative over and over again um and uh, a second one is that I, I go back to the release of the um, emails from the Swedish uh, Sport Federation. To the extent that Swedish media reported on this, um, they uh, there was a sort of there were there were there were sort of two ways of reporting it that I saw. One was you know here is a fancy bear attack. It's connected to the Russian intelligence services. Uh, another one was oh here's a bunch of interesting emails. Let's see what's in them. And without having any sort of knowledge about the credibility or the sources of these emails, uh, we couldn't really verify it very easily. And that seems to me to be sort of quite counterproductive. We should ignore this, maybe even, or you know, take media should. How, how should the media act when these sort of things happen? How can they? How can we help them? You know, perhaps do a more efficient job. But forgive me, who cares? The point is that the people that are going, I mean, are heading in this direction, are already in an alternative media space, and and I think that, you know what we see more and more is uh, a kind of separation or segregation of the information uh, environments in 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 many of the countries that we see. Where, for instance, in 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 the German context, those that voted um, AfD were genuinely living in an alternative media system, information environment. They were only imbibing uh, alternative media, primarily online from alternative sources. And so what happened in the mainstream media was irrelevant to them. Even in the online space, uh, the sort of no platforming policies of the, of the major tech companies has resulted in alt tech 
the alt-right now has alt-tech, which is essentially the, 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 the building out of their own platforms, of their own crowdsourcing capabilities. Of their, you know, so there is this investment now in alternative spaces. There is a bigger question around wh what the implication of that will be over time. Do you, uh, you know, do you have a mainstream media that essentially pushes all of this out, um, you know, to the margins? How, uh, what is the impact on the larger movement of that of that process, whether online or indeed offline and mainstream media? Um, I, th I think there's an underlying um, issue here, which which I really struggle with as someone who, who's sort of a journalist. Um, Okay, so we as journalists always thought of ourselves as sort of somehow floating above events, commenting on them, maybe in a partisan way, but somehow almost, you know, above the real world and certainly above politics, political action. And now you have a generation of leaders who use the media as the other through which they create their identity. Most obviously, Donald Trump, who's on purpose infuriating the media. The media opposes him. They goes, ah, oh, well you know, the elites. Salvini has done this in Italy. We're doing a lot of research on Italy at the moment at the LSE. And it's quite remarkable how he's moved one single issue to dominate the country, migration, when it wasn't the main issue. And has every time any of the legacy newspapers say, but hold on, he's lying. They say, ah, look, these people want Muslims to override our country. And so media, every time they do their normal thing of holding power to account, end up strengthening that power. And we're all completely trapped in this. We don't know any way out. We're also getting more readers as we do it, which is our guilty secret. What on earth do we do? I mean, the whole logic of where power is, what media do, the whole logic of democracy that we had there has been completely undermined. Um, again, I'm waiting for suggestions from the crowd, who I think are very clever. Find us on www.ui.sc. We are also on Facebook and on Twitter with UI Sweden. And we're also on YouTube where you can watch our seminars and interviews. <laughs>